0: Why teach harder math in K-12, next on the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast. I'm Pius Wong in Austin, Texas. My guest is Richard Rusick, former U.S. Math Olympiad winner and founder and CEO of Art of Problem Solving. At Art of Problem Solving, Richard wants to teach the kind of thinking you need for high-level math competitions, but to many more students. Richard spoke to me
1: from California about his goals. So my name is Richard Rusick, and um, about almost 20 years now I founded this company in which our goal was to uh, help develop the problem-solving skills of of many of our really advanced students. We started with kids who are really interested in math competitions, which is where I got my start And then have gradually expanded from there to kids who see a future in science, engineering, um, economics, philosophy, anything that requires taking basic ideas and solving really hard problems. I don't think of myself as teaching math when I'm teaching a math class. I think of myself Mm. as teaching more general skills um, because the, the general skills that I learned through math competitions and solving really hard problems, and it's the hard problems that are more important than the contest part, were really useful to me when I got to college. I could take those skills and I put them in physics, in engineering, in computer science, in economics, in all of these, in all of these sorts of areas. I didn't study math in college. I studied engineering myself. Um, so I, I saw firsthand how these skills transferred.
0: So you obviously have a passion for this education. You seem to say that mathematics is kind of fundamental to so many things, which I agree with. Where does that passion or interest come from? You said you even were
1: interested in math as as a kid growing up? right. I mean my, my first my first inclination that I might have a very deep interest in this came when I was introduced to a competition called Math Counts, which is actually run by the National Society of Professional Engineers. Uh, and it's a it's a middle school contest that uh, probably is the most important uh, extracurricular event in in education and math right now. It has launched a lot of really uh, really strong math science engineering students in the last, let's say 40, a little bit less than 40 years. I was there in its second year uh, in the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. And so I went to this math competition and, you know, I knew I, I knew I liked math, but I had not, I didn't realize how much until I went to this contest, I saw a lot of really fascinating things. First of all, I saw math problems that I didn't know how to do, which was pretty <laughs> cool actually. Uh, and, and it showed that I had a lot more to learn than just what I was seeing in the classroom. And I also I think that probably the most valuable part of this experience was seeing the other students there and the other adults there who were not uh, required by their profession or family connection to be excited about what the kids were doing. You know, there were a group of adults there that were excited about kids who were good at math and it wasn't their kids and it wasn't their students. And I had never seen anything like that outside of, say, a basketball court you know, where, where hmm. parents are excited about kids being good at something academic and it's not their kids. And then the other kids that I met there, they, they liked all the kind of a lot of the same stuff that I liked. You know, they, they had the same kind of sense of humor. They, they read the same types of books. Uh, it was being introduced to a culture that I didn't realize existed and certainly didn't realize when I was 13 that uh, this was going to be much of the professional culture that I'd be part of when I grew up. And I think this is something that a lot of middle school students don't get the opportunity to learn because middle school's hard. Middle school's mm-hmm. hard for everybody. And you don't notice that when you're 13. You just think it's awful just for you. But for a kid who's really into, into math or science or, or you know, building and making things, writing code, it can be pretty alienating because it's you know, the, the social rewards go to the pretty people and the people who can put a ball through a hoop. And you don't realize that the world's going to be very different and it's going to change very, very fast for you. You won't believe that when you're 12 or 13 no matter who tells you especially if it's the adults telling you because the adults always lie so you're just not, you're not just, um, but that was the experience that that math competitions gave me it was introducing me to this culture and then also introducing me to really good problems and part of what we've been doing at art of problem solving is like why do kids only get to exposed to these problems when they're in math competitions why don't we pull the problems out of the contests and bake them into Uh, bake them into the curriculum and use those as the teaching tools.
0: Hmm. So they really kind of inspired a lot of what you do today. How did you get introduced to math counts or these competitions? Was it kind of
1: random uh, yeah, my mom saw an article in the newspaper. You know, some of your readers may not remember, or some of your listeners may not <laughs> know what a newspaper is, but it's this stuff where they took the stuff that you see on web pages and they printed it on really flimsy paper. Um, but anyway, my mom saw an article in the newspaper, went up to the school, went to my teacher and said, I think, I think Richard would really like this. And it turned out she was right. Mom usually is. I don't like to admit that, but <laughs> uh, she was, she was definitely correct.
0: And I learned that you also participated in the Math Olympiad, kind of a similar math competition, I guess, when you were getting older. That's um, yeah. What was that like?
1: Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a very important developmental experience for me that I didn't realize until I got to college. So I went to uh, middle school in Tennessee and then Alabama and then high school. I was in uh, high school in Northern Alabama that I like to describe as aggressively average. Um, you know, <laughs> We had like a two-thirds graduation rate. Maybe 15%, 20% of us went straight to a four-year college. Um, The football team was five and five every year. Hmm. Uh, But there was a very rich competition culture, a math competition culture in Alabama. And I had a teacher there who would bring me to all of these contests all all around the southeast. So she invested a lot of her time in me. And my sophomore year, I made it to the U.S. training camp. So there's a series of competitions called the American Mathematics Competitions, that culminates in a camp. Then it was 24 students. Now it's around 50 or 60. Um, and from this camp, they would draw six students to be on the U.S. team. So I get invited my sophomore year, and you know I'm, I'm on this contest circuit in Alabama, where you know, I think before that year, basically no one from the contest circuit in Alabama had ever made it to this camp. So I'm going off to this camp my sophomore year, and you know since I don't know anyone who's ever done this, I'm quite sure I'm the smartest person in the world. And then I get to the camp. (laughs) Um, Mm. I'm there for five weeks. Uh, We have practice tests every other day, three or four questions, three or four hours, and I uh, uh, so I see fifty or sixty problems, and I get exactly zero correct (laughs) that Mm. that first year. So I realize I'm Mm. definitely not the smartest person in the world. So I spend the next year. Like working really hard, learning more and more theorems, and just memorizing more and more stuff. Because I thought the problem was that I didn't know enough facts, I didn't know enough math. So if I just memorized a bunch more stuff, I'd be able to do what all the other kids could do. So I was going to go back to the camp, show them what I could do. So I get back to the camp uh, after my junior year, and uh, you know, I I learned a whole bunch more math, and I was doing really well in all the local stuff, all the state stuff. And I get back to that camp and have exactly the same result. I was there for five weeks, saw 50 or 60 problems, still couldn't do any of them. And that was uh, where I really had to take a step back and think I'm doing this wrong. I I, I need to take a different approach to learning. And that was going back and really understanding all of the mathematics that I had memorized. You know, Mm -hmm. when you're 15 or 16, you can memorize an awful lot. Uh, I'm not 15 or 16 anymore and realize what a bad strategy that (laughs) is as you get Mm -hmm. older. Oh, the hardware the hardware gets worse. Software gets better, but the hardware gets much worse. <laughs> um, so during my senior year, I went back through my formula sheets, and I tried to prove the formulas that I had memorized and realized for the most part I couldn't. Um, so I, I had to really kind of work through why were these things true. And I couldn't prove all of them, of course, or even most of them. But as I started to learn how to prove some of them, I was, I think, doing mathematics for the first time, doing real like problem solving for for the first time. Now, when I talk about problem solving, I, I, I kind of describe that as that's solving problems you've never seen before. So like, not mm-hmm. replicating something you already know how to do, but doing something new. And that shift in the focus of my study really paid off that year. I I won a couple of the national competitions. I was an alternate for the US team. I still was definitely not the smartest person in the world, uh, but I could solve some of these problems and that I didn't really appreciate how much I had learned there until I went to college. You've heard me describe uh, my high school. I went to Princeton and I was worried about competing against kids that went to really fancy private schools or Mm -hmm. went to high powered magnet schools. And I found out very quickly that I had it backwards, that actually I had training the other students didn't have, even the kids in those fancy schools, because uh, the exams in college, you know, four or five problems, three or four hours, the problems don't look anything like the homework. You know, this is nothing at all like the experience we give kids in high school, even in the fancy schools. It was exactly the experience I had in these math competitions that took me two years uh, to figure out how how to do And I saw a lot of kids there in their first semester of math classes and physics classes. You know, they're coming into into Princeton thinking, you know, I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to build amazing things. Because all through middle school and high school, they were the best in their school at math. They got hundreds on everything. They walk into these calculus and physics classes and they hit this wall that they never saw coming. And they struggle. And a lot of them drop their majors, you know, move into Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. outside the sciences, move outside of engineering. And the, they, they define themselves as not being smart enough. And that's not at all what was going on because I saw kids climb over this wall. And by the end of college, they could do the things that I could do coming in the door. And some of them could do things that I couldn't do. Um, but that, that initial experience of, oh my goodness, what do I do when I see a problem that I don't understand? We are not giving our best students that experience until college and that's too late. And there's no feedback mechanism to tell the teachers that they have failed these students. Hmm. And that's that that I think is a critical failure that we're losing a lot of our top science and engineering students in that first year of college because their high school teachers have no idea that those kids are dropping out. Uh, they may not be dropping out of college, but they're dropping out of the hard sciences. They're dropping out of the hard problems because not because they weren't smart enough, but because they just weren't given that experience, the experience I had in these math competitions during during high school.
0: And I should repeat what you were saying earlier. You were studying engineering, chemical engineering at Princeton. And so you're speaking from experience how uh, kids – well, not kids, but now young adults were dropping out of engineering because of this feeling that they couldn't tackle things that they didn't know. You said a couple of things I wanted to ask about. That skill that you had going in that other students kind of had to fight for seemed to be uh, being able to tackle problems that you've never seen before – uh, tackle when you don't know something. Um, you you had talked about learning how to prove why things work or why those theorems you were memorizing worked. Are those the types of things that you would like to see more of in K-12 education? Is that what the art of problem solving is or, or what you are advocating
1: for? Yeah, there are a bunch of things that I would advocate for. I mean, as far as also, well, we'll start with uh, with proofs, so like in typical high school, Middle school. The only place that kids ever see a proof is in geometry class for a few weeks Mm -hmm. in very rigid kind of two-column formats, which isn't at all the way a a mathematician thinks or or operates. Um, I also don't think geometry is the right place to start with proofs. Uh, They should start with something that's, I'd say, even more tangible and 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 more approachable to a lot of students. Um, Maybe stuff in discrete math, which we don't teach at all in in middle school and high school. That's another area that I would like to see Mm -hmm. math education move is, um, modern mathematics, like, uh, discrete math. So it's just counting, counting principles, probability, these sorts of things, super important in the digital age. We're all going to work for the computers someday. Uh, we need to know how to talk to them and the mathematics they speak is discrete. We need students to know that mathematics, the, the trouble is bringing that into the classrooms hard because most of the teachers, um, they've not been trained in that mathematics. So it's, you know, there's a big, a big step there. I think the key thing is to give students harder problems, problems that don't look the same as problems they've already seen. Um, get them operating in an environment where 65 or 70% is uh, correct, is really, really good. That's what college looks like because in college, we're training the future scientists and engineers, the people who are going to be pushing the discipline in the next generation. And the people who are doing that are never operating in a space where they're getting it 100% correct. In fact, almost nobody operates in that space anymore because we have computers. Anything that humans do, one hundred percent well or ninety nine percent well, somebody writes code and the code <laughs> does that instead. Um, yeah. So I think that's one big transition: is giving kids a, a greater challenge, more experience operating in a space where uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's uh, they may fail to get all the problems, or no, they will fail to get all the problems. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this is. Uh, you know, you've worked in engineering, nothing ever works, right? Uh, it, you can only get it closer and closer and closer to working. And then at the end, like it's just a string of failures before you finally get <laughs> the best you ever get one. Um, mm. that's, that's something that little kids understand. You know, four-year-olds understand this because that's the way they operate in the world. Nothing works for them either because they're four. You know, they can't ride a bike. You don't want them chopping vegetables. Like there's all this stuff they can't do, but they want to do. And they keep trying and they keep trying but they can't do it because they're four and then they'll cry and they'll quit but then they do this really amazing thing because they're four they'll come back and try again because they haven't learned yet how to quit for good and this is something that we train into kids i believe during school we train them uh, to expect to hit 100 percent all the time or hit 95 percent, or whatever it is so that when we finally present them with a more meaningful challenge when they get to college it's shocking. And it's way easier for them to quit at 18 or 19 when the stakes are really high than it is when you're four. And you still have that toughness when you're four. And the the 12 years in between or just 14 years in between are just training that resilience out. So I I think we need to keep that toughness all the way through school instead of training it out of them.
0: So I do want to come back to that topic. Uh, I will ask more about the art of problem solving and these these other things that you've learned in, in working in education for this long, I kind of want to back up to at the okay. same time, you had mentioned growing up anyway, you were kind of comparing yourself to these other kids you had seen, or I guess even in college, comparing yourself to other students and their capabilities, their experiences. Did you go to public school? Yep. Okay. I
1: went to a public school
0: in Northern Alabama. Got it. And then you talked about how you had this idea of not feeling like you were the smartest person in the room or you thought you were in the beginning and then you learned you weren't. What was smart to you back then? And what I'll is say, it now?
1: <laughs> that is a great question. Um, yeah, that's it. So I would say smart back then is having all the answers. Smart now is having the good questions. Huh. And I think that is a, a big, a big leap to take. And when you're 14 or 15, the, the one who's winning all the trophies and getting hundreds on all the tests is the one that's smart. Whereas now often finding the the, the good question is way harder to find than the good answer in, in a lot of cases. And usually finding the right question is the key to getting the good answer. Hmm.
0: When did that definition change in your mind? Was that
1: in college? Was it like a, a overtime kind of thing or... It might have been thirty seconds ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it just occurred to me. I mean, part of it is running a company, and I would say that you know, running a company for the last eighteen or nineteen years, often it's a very uncertain space. You know, there's there's no syllabus for what to do to, in the next week. And actually, jumping back to my high school experience, this is actually uh, something where my high school, which you know, I've described as being aggressively average was really great training for me. I had very little homework in my high school. It was not challenging. I I had, like I mentioned, a, a teacher who invested a lot in getting me challenges outside the classroom. But because it wasn't particularly challenging, I had a lot of time. So during that time, I had to figure out what my goals were, find a pathway to reach those goals, and develop the discipline to stay on that path. And that was great training for running a company. Because when you're running a company, like I have one very, very vague set of goals for the company, which is you know, this, this uh, developing the skills of the great problem, solver problem solvers of the next generation. And like, there's no set of rules for that. There's, there's no expert I can go to and say, hey, what, what should I do tomorrow? The, the first step is to figure out what are the questions? What are the important things? Put together a team, um, hopefully people who have very different skills than I have, so that they can help find the right questions and then find the answers.
0: As you're talking about running a company, I want to get into that more too, because you said you studied chemical engineering at Princeton, and running a company uh, that wants to build better problem solvers doesn't tend to be the traditional path, I think, for mm-hmm. chemical engineers. So could you talk about how that happened? Because I know you started writing math education books even in college. Like, What was that shift like?
1: That's right. When I was in college, so I, I, at the beginning of college, I started a national math competition, which with a couple friends of mine, a mailing competition. So, you know, you'd send the, send the tests out, the schools would send their results back. And the scores were really low because we, we assumed all the kids knew all the math that we knew, which was not fair because (laughs) we were older than they were. Uh, So we had to decide whether to make the tests easier or try to teach the kids. Usually in American education, we choose to make the tests easier and that makes the results go up. Uh, We instead decided, one of my partners and I decided to write a math book, which then became two books. I started that my senior year of college. After I graduated from college, I went to grad school um, for eight weeks. (laughs) I I lasted Mm -hmm. eight weeks in grad school and then dropped out of grad school for a couple of reasons. One, I was quite sure I did not have the patience to be a researcher. I had worked two summers in research labs, one academic, one in industry. And I learned there, or just, like, just by talking to the other people who were there, like what is the mindset that you have to be in to be a great researcher? And I did not have it. I don't have the patience that you need to be a great researcher. And I might just not be good enough at the topic to be a great researcher. And the other reason I left was I wanted to I wanted to teach. you know writing these math books, um, I got really excited about my ability to teach kids. I mean, all through high school, middle school, college, I tutored and you know worked with worked with students who who might have been struggling. Um, and I felt like this is something that I could really contribute. This is a place I could really contribute. So then I taught high school for for the second semester of of that year. And then I, that's where I learned that teaching high school really, really hard. What was hard about it? Well, first of all, I was 22, and I looked like I was 12, uh, so discipline straight off was was going to be a challenge. But the bigger mm. problem, I think, the bigger problem was, I I wasn't mature enough to meet the students where they were. For the students who had already tapped out of caring about school or caring about math, for the honors kids. I I, I think I could. I think I did very well by them, and I enjoyed that. They enjoyed it for the most part. Uh, For the other classes, there would be a few kids in those classes that I, I I can even remember a few even remember a few names here and there of kids who probably for the first time realized they were good at math, and you know I could get them, I could reach them, I could get them to light up. But the kids who had already basically given up on it, I couldn't reach them. I couldn't empathize with them. I didn't understand them in the way that they might need to be understood to kind of reel them back. I also, as I was finishing the books, started thinking about, is there a way to reach more students? Now, this is before the internet. So uh, my, the, the guy I was writing the, the books with and I, we talked about starting a company, but it was 1994, it was a little too early. You know, had it been two thousand four, we just would have started the company. Then we would have been raising money. It would have been mm-hmm. off we to go. I don't know if we would raise money, but we we would have started something. Uh, so instead, I decided to go off and instead of teaching high school, do something a lot easier, which was which was go work for a hedge fund, which is way easier than teaching <laughs> high school. <laughs> that's a change, yeah. Yeah, it pays better too. I, I will I will admit that. Um, yeah. So that's that's the route I took. You kind of
0: faced your own version of. Of, to use the word failure, I mean, again, you you must have felt something when you felt like you couldn't necessarily reach the high school, all the high school kids the way you wanted to, but yet you turned that into something else that you could do better.
1: Later. Yeah. So like 10 years later, or nine years later, something like that. Uh, so I, I traded bonds for four years and then I left trading because I wanted to build something. I had no idea what it was. Um, sp- spent a few years you know, reading books, riding my bike, that kind of thing, trying to figure out what it is to do, I wanted to do for my next step. And of course, then the internet had come along. So I started coding and building web pages and I came up with the idea, wait a second, we could build a school online and those, those students who are really into math and want a greater challenge than they're seeing in their classroom. I just put up a sign and say, that's what we're doing here. Um, These books that, that Shandor and I had written have been out for 10 years now. I've got an audience if I can just let them know that this exists, I'll be able to get a bunch of people come in and start to build something. And that's what we did. In 2003, we launched the original Art of Problem Solving site. We started an online school that year. We had uh, two classes in our first summer, 12 students in each class. I think uh, this summer, we probably have a total of, I don't know, 10,000 enrollments or something. So we've grown. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's That's 18 years. So <laughs> um but that that is basically how we got started.
0: Okay. And so, for people who might not be familiar with art of problem solving, can you describe what kind of education, what kind of online education it is? Because I know that's kind of a broad term. Yeah. I have a very specific type of online education. I do synchronous uh, teaching, like with a certain population of students. Like, how do you do that?
1: Yeah. So we have a bunch of different avenues now. That's one of the things that I've learned throughout this time is uh, a deeper appreciation for the fact that kids learn in very, very different ways. And I guess, you know, uh, your experienced educators will be like, yeah, duh. <laughs> but <laughs> I thought it was the same as like, for me, it's just give me a book, put me in the corner. I'm good. Uh, that doesn't work for most kids. Um, so our original online school, what which we still have have today and is is our largest live instruction the, the students meet weekly in most of these classes they meet online and uh the medium is not what a lot of people expect like people expect there to be zoom they expect video they expect audio they expect a show our classroom is all text and images there's no video there's no audio it's teaching math in a chat room, which sounds completely crazy in in 2021. It makes sense in 2003 because maybe you can't do the video, Mm -hmm. but it's an extremely efficient uh, medium for conveying information. Kids in this classroom, they, if, you know, if you're in an audio classroom and you miss something, oh, it's awfully hard to get that back. But if you're in a text-based classroom well, you can just reread the thing. You can just scroll back up. If you get there a little bit late, you're not going to blow up the classroom asking the teacher to repeat everything. You can just scan what's there. You can ask questions at any time and you're not going to derail the class. So you can ask questions. The questions come to the instructor and their assistant instructor's the questions come in privately, the teacher can choose to put that in the main room and engage with it. If they think that a lot of students have the same question, this is another really nice thing about the classroom. It's like you can read all the students' minds if you have a talkative group because they're coming at you all the time. Mm. So you know when you lose them uh, and then you can kind of reel the class in. Or if the student is needs some individual instruction, you can whisper to them or you can hand them to an assistant or just open up a window and talk to them one-on-one while you're managing the main room. So it offers a lot of multi-threaded conversation that's very efficient and very easy to review as you're going. And for our students, you know, for students who are really, really dialed in and don't need to be, uh, let's say, entertained while they're learning or they define learning as the entertainment, uh, they want an efficient mechanism. The other thing that we've learned more recently is we do have some online classes that are video based and we have a second online school now because of the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. the second online school happened because we have physical learning centers. We have 10 of them around the country and of course they all got pushed online last March and we have a lot of young students that we didn't think the text, the text mechanism would work for. We shifted them onto to zoom based classes. Uh, what we've learned there is the older the kids get, the, the, the less likely they are to turn on their cameras. <laughs> they don't yeah. want the video classroom. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you've had that experience. Uh, uh,
0: I'm very familiar with a lot of things that yes. you're, you're mentioning, but I'm, I'm sure the listeners are too.
1: Yeah, so that's, I mean, those are the, the live instruction. The two or actually three media through which the text-based classroom, the Zoom-based classroom, and then our learning centers, which will be back in person this fall. Uh, we also have some uh, learning systems, automated learning systems, one for elementary school that's under Beast Academy. So it's beastacademy.com. That's our elementary school curriculum, which casts a broader net than our middle and high school curriculum. But we have a learning system there that, you know, has, our, has online versions of our books, it has videos, and has tons and tons of lessons and math puzzles and, and things like that. And then our high school website has uh, a has thriving It's just kids online talking about math. I think, uh, I check now, I've like 15, 16 million posts I think in the, in the lifetime of AOPs, in any given time you go on the site, there, are usually uh, anywhere, like right now there are 1,400 students or people on the site. Um, they've contributed, yeah, it's over 15 million posts now and over a million topics. What do they talk about? Mostly math, sometimes video games, and they make up their <laughs> own games. Like it's a very, it's, it's a, I think for a lot of our students, it's the introduction to the internet. Um, so like we have a lot of, let's say 11 year olds or 12 year olds that this might be the only site their parents let them on. So it's, it's kind of their, they'll build their own kind of social circles on the, on the site, which can be super important for kids who, particularly kids who aren't in a school that have a lot of kids like them. Um, so.
0: And I wanted to know more about that actually, like, I'm glad you're giving me a better picture of your classrooms. I guess, describe those students more, who are you serving? Who do you want to serve?
1: That kind of thing. So, I mean, we want to serve anybody. We want to, uh, all the students who are going to be great problem solvers in the future. And, you know, we, we started in math. We're starting to build out a science curriculum now uh, where we're looking for the right person to build out a computer science. We have language arts classes in our learning centers because, you know, it's no use having a great idea if you can't communicate that idea and convince others that it's a great idea. Um, most of our students tend to be, you know, they're coming to us through their parents, we are starting to work with schools. Uh, that'll that work will be mostly in the younger students with our Beast Academy curriculum. The kids that we work with some are there for math competitions, but that portion has gotten smaller over time, which we actually view as a success. Like I view the competitions as a as a way to spur interest and get them rolling, and then like you win when the kid wants to do the math because it's interesting instead of to win a trophy. Uh, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. That's a, that's an important step, although. I should say like when I don't want to say winning the trophy is a bad thing, like th- that sort of mentality, uh, that was certainly my mentality when I was a kid, there are whole industries where that mentality is really important. You know, the financial industry, building a, building a company, building a com. like they're having that sort of mentality of, um, you know, you can define a clear objective and you figure out how to get it. Uh, and you're going to win the race. Like there are places where that mentality is, is important. Hmm. Uh, It's uh, obviously what the VCs are selecting for when they're funding. So
0: you have sounded like you successfully expanded your audience. I know that you focus on like you focused in the past more on those math competitions and getting students into that. But it sounds like you're expanding it to a much wider audience. How did you do that? Like, if there are other people trying to do a similar thing, get more kids interested in math, um, and and just learning more on their own. How did you do it? How can people
1: do that? Yeah, so uh, there've been a few different avenues. One was as we finished our middle and high school curriculum, this is maybe 2010 or 2011, we were trying to figure out what to do next, and one of the things we were really interested in is getting more students who wanted to do the things that we were doing and and you know, who wanted to struggle with math this way, who wanted to solve interesting and difficult problems. And we figured we had two different avenues we could pursue. One is uh, we could do more marketing. We're a bunch of math people at this point. (laughs) We're terrified of marketing. (laughs) The other is we could try to create more students who are interested in this, which means building an elementary school curriculum. Mm -hmm. So we opted for the second path because we were afraid of the first one. But the second path, so so a few things happened there as we started to build out our elementary school curriculum. One is I kind of shifted my thinking from trying to create more kids who want to do this to retain more kids who want to do this? Because as we talked earlier, I believe young kids are naturally problem solvers and they lose that skill instead of have to be taught that skill. So uh, the second was as we're building out our elementary school curriculum, the kids when they're younger are more tightly grouped in terms of their interest and capacity and and abilities. Uh, so you can create a curriculum that is designed to engage the most interested you know most able students and also hit a lot of the other students as well you can't do that in middle school or high school you can't engage the strongest students and the kids in the middle once you get up to middle school and high school because the kids separate in terms of their interest and ability you know they they get much farther apart so if you're going to give the same material to both you're going to lose one or both of those groups but in elementary school you can you can do that you can at least that's the hypothesis you can you can hit both of them so we, we were casting a broader net so going younger is one avenue. The other thing we did in starting around 2011, so I'd created a separate nonprofit um, called, now it's called the Art of Problem Solving Initiative. Uh, originally, that was created to run the USA Math Talent Search, which was uh, national math. Uh, it's called a competition, but I'd say it's more of, a, of an activity that was being run by the National Security Agency at the time. They wanted it to continue to exist, but they didn't want to run it anymore. So they asked Mm. us to run it. So we created this nonprofit entity to be able to pay the graders and all that. So we have this nonprofit entity. And by 2010, 2011, we started to see something pretty interesting going on in the United States, which was um, the the students who are at the very high end mathematically in strong schools or in well-connected networks they were getting better at math much faster. Like if you look at the contests from say, you know, 1995 until 2015, they get a lot harder because Mm -hmm. the kids are getting a lot stronger. And why did they get stronger? Uh, Another piece of evidence that the kids were getting stronger is the United States has won the international math Olympiad for the last six years for the prior 20 years, the United States never won. So clearly something has shifted there. And there are a bunch of factors, but one of those factors is that these kids uh, have access to resources outside the school. They're going to summer camps. They're coming to us. The kids are networked. So they're learning from each other. They're, they're networked through our site, largely those kids who won the international math Olympiad all those years, they're all our students. So like, and and they were the first generation of kids to have access to all of our materials. You know, like I mentioned, we finished about 2010, 2011, finishing off the, these, so the, these, well, well-networked, well-connected students, they're able to learn earlier, faster, deeper. They know each other. They're already in the culture very early on. So they're walking into college years ahead of where I was mm-hmm. when I when I entered college. But what about the kids who aren't in this network? What about the kids whose parents don't even know to look or can't afford to do it like those kids the gap between the top kids the top well connected kids and the top kids who are not well connected that gap has grown tremendously and like if you talk to professors at top tier universities you know they see it you know there's just a huge huge gap between these two groups of students so we we went back to the to our nonprofit and like we've got this entity here why don't we start working on that problem and start building programs to reach into communities um, that are, are not well represented in any of these in any of these disciplines, and try to figure out what to do there. So we started as, that was 2011 might have been our first year. We started a summer program. It's now called Bridge to Enter Advanced Mathematics Beam, mm-hmm. in which that started in New York. Now we're in New York and Los Angeles, and we're starting to launch a national program that's designed to bring Beast Academy to uh, students from these demographics uh, from these underserved communities all over the country into more advanced mathematics. So we started in middle school, students finishing seventh grade. Um, we'd, we'd bring them to a residential camp. For many for many of our students, it was the first time they have ever been outside New York City. Um, bring them to a residential camp. And it was a fascinating experience seeing these kids. I mean, the first step is to build the culture, is to do the same sort of thing that, you know, I did when I was a kid in math competitions, you know, we play all the same. Yeah, game. I was gonna say it sounded very similar. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's to introduce them to that because turns out they like all that stuff too. (laughs) You know, it's just, just, you know, they, just because they didn't go to a school that had all that stuff or because their parents at home weren't engineers, you give them a Rubik's cube. They're still super curious about it. They're still going to take it apart. They really inhabited, they, they behave and have the same interests as the students I work with online. And then you do math with them. They're just as dialed in. They're just as excited about it they're several years behind in math because nobody's ever shown them anything. And that I think has been a real illumination uh, for us is just a a realization that we need to start even younger than like Mm -hmm. seventh grade is too late. Uh, It's not too late um, in the sense, like some of those students have, you know, have been successful, but they're still like, they're starting from well behind the students that we're working with online. So now we're trying to push younger and younger and younger um, and, and, starting to work with schools. So we have a separate program that we've started inside the company that's called Lumen uh, that we're partnering with schools to bring in cohorts of students into one of our online schools as really a second grade to oh, teach wow. them this way. And in some cases we're going to be hopefully partnering with the school so that then we can move, bring it back in the other direction, you know, put their teachers in those classes and then have them bring that stuff back into their classroom for a broader population. So uh, that's, that's a much longer term goal. And we we have a lot more to learn there as well as what sort of supports do, do teachers need to be right. able to deliver this in a, in a full classroom environment. So that's another way we're broadening access.
0: Oh, for sure. And it makes me wonder what else we can learn from these programs. Cause you've obviously, I know it's not like you've got all the information yet, but you've got a lot of information. Um, one of the things I was wondering is what kind of you know, more challenging math curriculum do you give to middle schoolers? What kind of content can engage students like that that you you give them in person in Beam or even online in Lumen?
1: Like what kind of things should teachers
0: be giving to students at that age?
1: I mean I think the main thing is the the problems is to give them problems that don't just look like the homework with the numbers changed. Like that that I think is the, the, the fundamental one of the fundamental failures in, in the way many places, many places teach math in America is students are taught to believe that math is a set of recipes that must be mastered. And that is not at all what math is. You know, math is a deeply creative discipline. It's a, it's a way to, you know, explore ideas and explore the world. And that is just not the way we teach it, not the way we teach it at all. So I think that's one of the fundamental things we need to do. One of the things we do in elementary school, we, we use a lot of puzzles. You know, these are our, many of them are ones we've created, uh, we've invented. We have a couple people on our, our team here who were members of the US puzzle team that goes off to the oh, wow. championships. And one of them actually won the individual uh, top puzzle or puzzle solver in the world. Um, but as good as they are at, at solving puzzles, they're even better at writing them. And we use the puzzles they create they 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 do a few things. Well, like one is like you do still have to learn the basic skills. I don't want to say kids. Uh, you know there there is a strand of education that, that argues, or I don't know if they're in education, but there's a strand of people who argue that the kids shouldn't be taught arithmetic anymore and they shouldn't be taught algebra because machines do all that stuff. All of that is it is true that machines do that stuff, but kids still need to understand what's going on. The kids do need the basic skills, but what the puzzles do is it, gets, it gives the kids the chance to, to get in the reps. You're like, you need to do the reps to get the skills without even realizing they're doing the reps uh, because they have a bigger goal here. They want to figure out this puzzle. Oh, I'm going to have to add these two numbers as a step in this puzzle somewhere. But now it's not, oh, I have to add these numbers. No, it's, oh, I have to add these numbers to get to the next step. Uh, you know it's, it's a shift there. But in the puzzles, a well-designed puzzle, like you can think of a basic example, might be Sudoku. The, the hard part, one of the hardest parts is just that first step where you're like, where do I start? Yeah, like, this is a human problem. You know, once the machines can solve that problem, then we're finished. We're, we just be nice to them. Hope they hope they don't eat us like. Uh, but this is the human problem that we want kids to to have a lot of experience with. And that's what we do with these puzzles is they have that experience. Where what, what's the first thing I do? Oh, I figured out this little thing. What does that tell me? Oh, it tells me this other thing. Uh, what does that tell me? Oh, I combine it with this other thing over here, you know, that, that kind of higher order problem solving skills. I mean, this is what you're doing in engineering, right? Like you don't just, you know, open up if you're going to, if you're going to try to figure out how this reactor works or is designed, like you don't just know how it works. Like you fiddle with it, you mess around with things. Um, Mm. And that's, that's what we're trying to teach the kids here is to be comfortable playing with ideas, to be comfortable with occasionally or maybe frequently being wrong, that's okay. You know, the goal is just to eventually get there. It's not to be right in every single step. Because if, if you're gonna have that as your restriction, you have to be right in every single step, you'll never move.
0: How do you teach young people that they don't have to be right in every single step and still be okay?
1: You you have to start early enough that they haven't learned <laughs> the, mm. the I believe it, I still I believe it's a learned behavior. I think another step, another way is putting them in environments where they see examples. Like being in an environment where you see another, a peer that you really respect struggle shows that it's okay for you to struggle too. And this is something that I've had to, I mean, I'm still, I still struggle with asking for help. um, But one of the things that has helped me make that transition to ask for help when I need it is reflecting on, some of the great problem solvers that I know, and I know some really, really brilliant people, they are also among the people I know who are most willing to ask questions that uh, you might think are pretty stupid questions. You know, you might be like, what, how do you not know that? Oh, but they're, they're shameless about it. They're not, they're not worried about that. They hmm. want to learn. They want the information. They want to be smart more than they want to appear smart. And I think that's another shift for kids to make is, is if they can, if you can get them into those sort of, into those sort of groups. Um, one of the things I like to say to, to groups of kids is, that, you know, if you're, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to find a different room. Uh, so <laughs> and I think that's, that's quite true is, is you want, you want to give kids that experience. Sounds like you're experience. talking about
0: giving them heroes or, or peers and mentors, something like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean also uh, heroes, but also, uh, and then also seeing that they're human, right? It's not like if you have a hero and you just view them as perfect, but if you have a hero and you see them fail, like you learn a lot from that. You, mm-hmm. you learn, you learn, oh, uh, I can struggle too, and that's okay. Or I can eventually do that. And I think that is, it's not that they're just perfect and they're just way above me and blah, blah, blah. It's, oh, this is a process. This is, this is learning. This is what learning looks like. And I can get better. And that is like, you don't want kids or anyone to internalize. There's just a hierarchy or ranking that you're just born with. And that's, and that's where you are. You're stuck. Um, You know, you you want them to, to see those models of others that they respect and admire um, developing their own skills because you can copy those strategies.
0: Related to Beam and, and your other initiatives at the nonprofit or even in your company, um, you talked about working with schools to identify students who would be great for your programs, who might want to get this, this supplemental great math experiences. What does that mean exactly? How do you, like, what do the schools do or how do you work with schools to find those students?
1: So I mean, it, it, the the answer differs in which based on whichever lanes we're playing in. But for Beam, what we've done is we partner with uh, we partner with schools in the areas that we're going to work, and the we ask the teachers uh, and the schools to identify students who might be a fit, and we ask them to cast a very wide net because it isn't necessarily the case that the kid who is, gets all the homework right is the right is the right sure. word. Yeah. Necessary? Yeah. Yeah. So we go in and we work with the students. We you know spend a little time with them. We give them a set of problems. Uh, we do something interesting. We, we also give them, you know, give them an envelope and paper. And just like, if you have any more ideas about this problem, send it to us. Hmm. And like, that's a different, sl- I mean, often you're going to have a correlation between the kids who are really doing really well in school and the kids who will do that. But there are going to be some interesting ones who will do that second thing without who are not necessarily showing up as the strongest student in school? Like you pique their curiosity. They're they're willing to do something. They're willing to work hard on something that is interesting to them. They're not willing to work hard on something that is not interesting to them. So like there's a there's a bit of a selection there where we're going to select for something different. We're not just going to like give them an IQ test and say okay, g- give us these three. So I think that's a that's um, a big part of what we do there. Uh, With our Lumen program, what we're doing is we're looking for schools. Uh, The schools will will pick the cohorts of students, although we're starting to work with the schools more to figure out exactly how to do that. But we're also looking for schools there uh, where the schools will provide some support within the schools. So BEAM, for our local models in New York and Los Angeles, we're doing all the work ourselves. Uh, the, the national model I think is going to work much more with schools and it will have the same kind of thing as Lumen where we're going to look for schools where we're going to provide a lot of support and do a, a fair chunk of the instruction. But okay. we're going to ask the schools to provide time and space inside the school for the kids to continue their work, maybe work with someone there. So that the school is sending a signal that, you know, this is important. This is special because again, this the students that I work with online regularly, um, they have this, that, you know they've got school and they've got this other stuff, they got support at home.'re you know, coming, they're coming to the material from a lot of different directions and getting a lot of different types of supports. So if you're going to want to pull kids from new environments, you wanna, you need to give them the same sort of structures. Uh, you know There's no reason to believe that the, the thing that will work for this the group of kids who are winning all these contests won't work for this other group. but if you're only going to give them one slice of it, you can't expect it to work.
0: Right, right. You're trying different ways to increase access to these resources. Are there other ideas that y'all have to to do that that you haven't been able to implement yet? Thoughts that maybe other people can
1: explore? Yeah, I mean the biggest is getting into the schools is is changing what's going on in the schools. That's what I I'd say that's one area where my thinking has really shifted in the even just the last 5 years hmm. is that there's um is to really hit a broad number of students. Like if you want to uh, double or triple the number of kids coming out of high school who are capable of operating at this level. You can only do that if you can get into the classrooms and you need to get into the classrooms early. You need to shift what's happening in most or many third grade classrooms, second grade classrooms. That's hard. You know that's 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 systemic. That's there's so many pieces of that problem. That, you know, I'm not really sure where to start. We'll start on the piece that we can actually get our hands on, which is starting to build the supports in our own curriculum that would allow a typical third grade teacher to be successful with it. That's going to take time. But we're also going to have to do a lot of learning ourselves. And I think that's part of the main challenge is to get some different types of people working on the problem. You know, it's like ed, the elementary school education has been dominated by ed schools for basically ever maybe maybe some other people need to play you know maybe maybe they need to invite some more voices into the room and try some different experiments and try some different some different approaches and set the bar in a different place like this is another another i would say broad shortcoming of the american education system education writ large i think has two goals should have two goals an education system one is broad literacy this is getting all the kids To have a solid baseline in a core set of topics, you know, math, uh, reading, writing, the scientific method, uh, some, you know, basic ideas of economics, basic ideas of history, how to use a computer. You know, there's a basic set of things we want every kid to hit a certain baseline. This is what our education system is designed for. We can talk about whether or not it's actually doing it well, but Mm -hmm. all of the bars we set in education, all of the measurements we make, every time we say oh we need to shut down the schools it's only looking at this half of the goal of education of broad literacy the other half is deep mastery we don't do this at all in k-12 education we push it all to college and we're just like oh that's going to happen in the university we don't prepare kids for that at all there are some special teachers who do it there are some special programs in a few special schools what i mean by deep mastery and this is not every kid doing every subject Hopefully, it's every kid getting a chance to find something to go deep and master. But it is for a kid finding something that they're really passionate in to be able to spend the extra time to go really deep into the subject, to be challenged and trained the way a future practitioner will. And we understand this in athletics. You know, this is the way we structure all of our athletics. You know, those kids who don't really want to spend a whole lot of time playing basketball, they get PE class and that's fine the basketball mm-hmm. team school ends an hour early and they go work with a specialized teacher to train them in those skills this is what we do in athletics we can do the same thing in academics where a kid who and it's not just for math i think it's this is where you you know people complain about there not being any art education any music education like that's this is the lane you would put your future great musicians in artists your poets is is to have this path that gives every kid an exposure to the opportunity to, to learn at the level of mastery. This path doesn't exist anywhere outside athletics in most schools. And that is, that is a piece that, you know, if you could, if I could own a system like own an education system, I would start working on how to create these two paths.
0: Well, I know that you're trying to clear that path a lot with the art of problem solving and everything that you're doing. If people want to find out more about what you do uh, or your nonprofit
1: or any of that, what's the best way to do that? So for uh, the best way to get to the company is just aops.com, aops.com or artofproblemsolving.com. The nonprofit, uh, the work we do at Beam is at beammath.org, B-E-A-M-M-A-T-H.org and our elementary school. So if you have any elementary school listeners would be beastacademy.com. Okay. And then great. our learning centers, I should throw in the learning centers as well. Sure. Uh, yeah. Opsacademy.org. So we have multiple, that's for our learning centers that are around the country. And we we are starting to look in Austin too. So maybe we'll be in your neck of the woods.
0: All right. Yeah. Austin is always a big uh, deal in education, I think. Um, and actually I should ask, is COVID change, COVID rules changing at
1: all for your, uh, those academies or in-person facilities? We, we hope to be back in, we expect to be back in person this fall. We've been online since, since middle of March last year, like everybody else, but we we expect to be back in person.
0: I guess fingers crossed, you know, given the news. All right. Well, yeah, but we've been talking a long time. Are there any other resources from yourselves or, or other people you like that you think other engineering educators or STEM educators should know about before we close out?
1: I will I will put in a plug for probably my favorite source of playing around with programming uh, for those are your listeners who are involved with programming and that's Project Euler, E U L E R and if you've heard of that, them, yeah it's a, it's basically it's just a really long list of math problems that are meant to be solved with with computer code.
0: Oh wow and, okay
1: yeah it's 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 the way I. Uh, whenever I'm trying to mess around with a new programming language, I go to Project Euler and work on some of the problems. Hmm. Uh, and it's it really gave me a deep appreciation for computer science as an intellectual discipline because there are a lot of problems there that I've looked at and I've been like, oh, this is a trivial problem. Uh, this can take me five seconds. I'll write some code and I'll hit <laughs> no. and I'll be like, oh, wait a second, this code is going to take until the end of time. To- <laughs> <laughs> right. So then you have to start thinking, oh, how do I... I need to come with the problem in a different direction to get it to, to converge efficiently. And that's where you start to really appreciate, oh, wait a second, there's there's some really deep, interesting conceptual work um, that you need to be able to do to design really good algorithms.
0: All right, Richard, thank you so much for sharing that and, and sharing all your thoughts about uh, education and math and good luck with all your projects.
1: All right, thank you very much. I really, really enjoyed this.
0: That was Richard Rusick, CEO of Art of Problem Solving. Find links to what we mentioned today in the show notes or at the podcast website, k12engineering.net. There you can also find transcripts, conversations with lots of great past guests, and more. The K-12 Engineering Education Podcast comes from my creative studio, Pios Labs in Austin, Texas. At Pios Labs, I make podcasts, program educational technology, train professionals in engineering and education, and more. Follow Pios Labs all over the internet to stay updated. That's P-I-O-S-L-A-B-S. Thanks so much, once more, to the true champions who have donated to this podcast to help me keep it going. Gracias, gracias merci beaucoup. You can donate too on Patreon. Donate for perks at patreon.com slash Pios Labs. And please leave a rating for the show wherever you're listening now. That'll help spread these talks to more folks interested in engineering education. Thanks for tuning in, listener. Until next time. It's been a while since I had post show notes, but I've got three extras for you to listen to if you made it this far. One, I updated my coordinates app. Coordinates, you might remember, is my free open educational web application that lets you listen to what math equations sound like on the piano. Furthermore, I heard from several users, including cool mathematicians and musicians, and I added the feature due to their feedback to turn math equations into sheet music. So now you can look at and print out and play what a tangent function sounds like. You can mess around with the I don't know, some quadratic equation on a chromatic scale or something or a a pentatonic Hirojoshi Japanese scale and then play it on the piano for your nerd concert. It's great. Go check it out. Two, I have a new project that I'd like some feedback on if you're interested. I teach math and something I would like to have is to automatically translate spoken math statements into written math text, meaning if I ask you to speak a mathematical expression, you know, the square root of x squared plus the difference between four minus y, something like that, if I said that, I would want my web app to automatically translate that into written form on the screen. And I wanna use it as a teaching tool where students could at home practice speaking their math equation and looking at what comes out. And they can immediately kind of get some feedback of like, wait, did I say that how I really meant it? They could get used to saying, hey, open parentheses, close parentheses, or I don't mean the difference. I really mean the sum, or I don't mean quotients. I really mean the product this time, that kind of thing. It's about connecting spoken English math language to written Equations or expressions or algebra. Let me know what you think. Is that something that's cool or is that just something I'm building for me as well? Kind of like an art project. Who knows? Uh, Let me know. Third post-show extra. One last project that I'm kind of messing with is especially interesting to Texans. We had a freeze back in February, which was pretty awful. Does anyone know how awful it was? It was really awful. I can laugh about it now, but it was really bad. People died and people escaped their homes, people didn't have clean water, it was really awful. You might know that at Pios Labs, I also mess with uh, creating small, little entertaining tools, including games. Well, I'm gonna create a quote-unquote game called Survive the Texas Electrical Grid. At least that's the plan. Survive the Texas Electrical Grid, colon, the freeze. And the idea is to put you into the driver's seat if you were here in Central Texas, or anywhere in Texas for that matter, and you lost power for the week in a home, in a municipality that was not prepared for it, would you know what to do? If you were told to prepare for one or two days without power, and then it turned out that it dragged on for much longer, what would you have done? So uh, if that sounds cool to you, you can follow the development process by following Pios Labs on Instagram. Alright, that's it. I went on long enough. Thanks for listening and checking out some of these other projects.